Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, it's Brendan here, vetgurus.com, episode 304, Thursday, July the 21st, 2023, episode 304. Mark, are you with us? I think you're on mute there. You'll need to unmute yourself and hopefully you'll appear suddenly. Here I am. Here you are. (laughs) Good to hear your voice, Mark, (laughs) as always, and hopefully you've been well. I Excellent. Hope. I've been in fine fittle, Brendan. Very fine fittle. Fine I've been, fettle. Um, yeah. Fine fiddle and fettle and form. Excellent. Fine That's form. good to hear. I'll tell you what, Mark, I've been enjoying vicariously some of the sporting events that have been going on recently. In particular, the one I'm always looking forward to every year. We're into the last week almost, the Tour de France, Mark, the oh, cycling. Yes. Ah, it's been another cracker of a year, Mark, as you would say. It's been awesome, um, fantastic day as this goes to air. The one of the final days in the mountains will be cycled, um, will be run. And the last night's mark was the the race of truth, as they call it, which is the individual time trial. And the two leaders, just in case people are not trying to follow the news and just looking at the daily summaries, the two leaders were 10 seconds apart, Mark, after you know two and a half thousand kilometres of cycling. They're only 10 seconds apart from each other. And one of them blew the other one away on the individual time trial. It was very exciting. So um, now... One person is more than a minute in front. So really enjoying that, Mark. And the other thing I'm really looking forward to is in our neck of the woods, Mark, the Women's World Cup soccer or football, depending on what region of the world you live in, um, is about to commence, Mark. And the first match is happening tonight as this podcast goes to air, Thursday, July the 21st, 2023, Australia versus Ireland, I think it is, Mark. So will you be trying to watch any of the soccer? I've been, uh, the, of course, the Australian team is so entertaining, but I've seen some outstanding advertisements. Not least uh, is the, um, <clears throat> the the French women's team. Have you seen this ad where they have taken um, some of the play from the women's games, then digitally altered them to make them to make the men, then done a big ad saying, "Oh, how is it great? How great is it watching the um, the French national team, the men's team? They tell us what soccer really is, and then they." actually have a little reveal to show that the wonderful athleticism and and sporting skill is uh, being displayed by the women's team, unsurprisingly, I might add, and that's encouraging many people to watch it, me amongst them. I have not seen that, Mark. You'll have to forward me a a link to that particular ad. It sounds... Sounds um, fascinating. Sounds like it's really perked your interest there. But yes, I'm really looking forward to it. It's you know, it's not a not a game that I played 
played a fair few different types of sports when I was a youngster, as, as you no doubt did, Mark. But soccer was not one of them. I, I played the occasional match when or game for the school, but that's about it. It's, I really didn't get into it. But I, I enjoy watching it, the beautiful game, as they call it, Mark, although, you know, horses for courses. Some people find it boring and some people have no interest in all at all at, in sport, Mark. So they'll have switched off already for this podcast. <laughs> but so we, we maybe we should bring it back on track. Vetgurus at gmail.com. Send us an email. Tell us to shut up and talk about vet stuff or maybe talk more about the other stuff we ramble on about. Who knows? We, get, we, do, we, do, we do get a few people, don't we, who say they enjoy us talking about all the other bits more than the veterinary-based um, discussion we have. So, yeah. I, like, I like combining it too. I think it's symbolic of having balance in your work. I think we should think about other things, uh, but I do think there comes a time when we've got to return to our core and do our business. And speaking of business, Mark, you wanted to take a I news did. article? Well, no, I want to do a review, Brendan. I want to do oh, a review. Do too. Yes, we've been, yes. It's been a while since we've done a review and it will put some pressure of time on us today with this podcast, but I'm going to review another app. I have um, reviewed a number of uh, nature-focused apps, the, the uh, Frog ID app, which does a wonderful job. And one that I'm using quite a bit lately is the iNaturalist app, uh, Brendan, where um, the way this works is um, that you take a photo or do a short recording, take a photo with your phone, um, you post it to iNaturalist, and then some experts will um, help you identify the plant or animal that you've taken a photo of. And particularly for me, someone who wants to know um, all the things I don't know um, about nature, it's a particularly useful bit of gear. And it has the added benefit that some of your photographs or some of the information, maybe the location data, might contribute more to science, might be included um, in some surveys or range determinations and so yeah it's a bit of citizen science tossed in with the um the benefit of of getting um of getting your uh plant or animal identified the only negative i'd say about the iNaturalist app brendan is that there's no restriction on who can comment on your uh on your photograph and so sometimes you will get some enthusiastic amateurs <laughs> who might be prone to, uh, well, um, uh, giving less qualified assessments of your image than others. I think once you've got a bit of a handle on this, you can deal with that stuff, though, can't you? If you, if there's yes. I'm nothing more than an enthusiastic amateur myself, so I know the excitement that comes with that stuff. Um, and, um, and yeah, um, having a look at the qualifications of the people who are commenting on your picture uh, can lend you some confidence in the veracity of the identification they're making. But overall, Brennan, I find it an excellent app and it really enhances my experience in the bush. The iNaturalist app, I recommend it for you. 8.6 out of 10. 8.6 out of 10. 
how did I how yeah. did I know it was going to be that? Yes, it's a, I've I've just been poking around with the app again. I do have that app, Mark, um, as um, as you've been chatting there, and it's slick, isn't it? It is. It is slick. slick. It is pretty app. slick. I um, I thoroughly endorse it, Mark. Um, I. I'm going to give it 8.8. Um, oh, that's a rare, rare compliment, a rare recommendation. Yes, it was and is a very good app. Um, it's, gee, we're living in exciting times, aren't we, Mark, where we have all these sort of apps. Resources. And, and, and it's free too. It's fantastic. Um, it is fantastic. Um, so like Merlin, the bird ID, um, I've, I'm using that in increasingly mark you'll be yeah you'll be proud to proud of me to um for me to say that and uh yeah they're good they're very good these apps and they it's a bit like catching pokemons isn't it um you you get (laughs) encourages you to get out of that encourages (laughs) you to get out catch them all exactly build build your repertoire yes great mark i naturalist app now News stories. We'll, we'll just have a couple, I think, this week, Mark, to, to keep um, it trim, to keep it um, punchy, Mark. And I, and um, do you want me to take the first yeah, one? Go for it. Go, go, to... go, go. Oh, mine's mine's a bit of a weird one, as usual. Um, and it's you who sent it to me. Thank you very much, there, Mark. Um, drones are disturbing critically endangered shorebirds. Is a sort of clickbait title here, Mark. So. Uh, not that it's a, a common thing, Mark. Um, that 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 there was a bit of a research study done, Mark, to to determine whether drones can interrupt birds as they rest or feed. Well, dull, of course they will if they go <laughs> low enough, but it it can even cause them to avoid some locations completely, Mark. So what happened is they studied a divert birds that birds you love these birds, don't you, Mark? Oh, these these shorebirds, shorebirds, um, and in particular, the eastern curlew, and they've got a nice little pick there, Mark. Um, they've got on that, on, on, and we will link to this. Uh, so what they did is they, what did they do, Mark? There we go. They they went to Moreton Bay Marine Park where they did the research, Mark, and it's the single most important site in Australia for the eastern curlew which i think is critically endangered is it mark or at yes least it endangered? is endangered and we're disturbing shorebirds within the marine parks and a fence but that's where they did the the um, little study there so they basically flew drones mark close to them and further away from them to try and determine whether or not it would um, cause them any distress, and they did have ethics approval. Mark, you'll um, you'll be pleased to know. know. They flew the drone towards the flock of birds in in Moreton Bay, and they found many species were not disturbed, provided the drone was small. And they, I don't know whether they really define that. And it flew above sixty meters. And however, the exception was that that critically endangered eastern curlew which became alarmed and flew away even when a very tiny drone approached it at the maximum legal altitude of 120 meters um, and they all took to flight mark and there's a little video link with it there too so but but it's not something that you know is is commonly done but we could certainly see it happening more in the future with with the um with the explosion of drones, Mark, and uh, I don't know whether you, a related news story here in, in 
Melbourne, Mark. Did you see what happened with the drone display in Melbourne? I did indeed. So there was a a, a drone display of, I I think, like 50 or 100 or 500 drones that um, were... One of those... um, AI fireworks, controls, yeah, firework display. type light display over over the Yarra River, I think it was, yes, here in Melbourne, <laughs> and uh, I reckon somebody hacked into the, <laughs> the, tra- the transmitter, and I'm not saying anything, but I think somebody did, and they all just fell to the ground, didn't they? And and lucky, not lucky, to the ground. Luckily enough, it was over the water so they fell into the arrow mark uh, and they've had some divers um, fishing them out from the bottom of the arrow over the, over the last day or two mark i think they've got most of them so yeah so hundreds and hundreds yes, of them yes so um getting back to our news story mark um the the research was concerned that you know perhaps um drones you know people out there trying to do you know all their Vlogging, Mark, uh, might disturb some of these birds that um, that are endangered or, or even less endangered. And please do not disturb them. And there's certainly that, that they show a, a little display there, a migratory um, shorebird roost in sight. Please do not disturb. I think they'll have to put up another sign there saying no drones there, Mark. Um, I, I get the impression because a lot of the photographers I know who particularly bird photographers photographers have drones as well. Yep. And when they first came out, they were flying drones over everything. But there are many more restrictions about where they can fly. I think worldwide they they've tightened up a heap, haven't they? And you know, people used to fly them, you know, you'd set them up and fly them out in your backyard and spy yeah. on the neighbours and all sorts. <laughs> But now Not- they, I think a lot of those photographers even are, are more judicious in their use. And and I, while there's always going to be the the individual who um, tests the the tolerance of of their community, uh, most people who use drones these days are doing it reasonably sensibly. I do know that that in some locations they use drones to survey areas where shorebirds are. So these studies which look at how the drones affect them I think are really useful and, uh, and yeah, hopefully we can do a bit to help that critically endangered eastern curlew to, um, to survive in Australia where it rests and lands. Yep. My story, once again, is about birds. I know this will come as a complete surprise to you, Brendan, It's a little bit of a personal one, though. Last year when we were at the UPAV conference in Darwin, I kidnapped you and took you to Lee Point. And we took some photographs of those beautiful finches. We were able to wander around for a couple of days and um, and see the... The Gouldian finches, it's one of the easiest places to see wild, wild Gouldian finches in the world. But it does happen to be on Defence Housing Australia land and um, Defence Housing Australia have a development application which has been approved and they've sent the bulldozers in, Brendan. They have courteously, because the traditional owners of the land have filed an emergency application, they have halted their land works, but um, also some... Uh, people protesting were arrested, and uh, and they their case has just recently been heard as well. So it'll be interesting because you and I've been there. It'll be interesting to um see how how this 
conservation, uh, you know, the, the work to try and save the place, um, how it goes. It's It sort of surrounds a, do you remember how it was a, um, a bit of bushland around the back of a caravan park? Yes. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how how it goes um, over the next, because the stay of use of the bulldozers is only for a month. Um, so it'll be this time next month, we'll have a bit of an idea about whether the Finches have a home or not near Darwin. Yes, that was an eye-opening experience, Mark, taking me there to um, to Twitch. Gee, they were twitching, weren't they? I, oh, yeah. I was. I was. I just sat back and watched all the twitches twitch, Mark. Um, <laughs> and you were, you were salivating at one stage. Oh. Um, it was. Um, it was. It was quite amusing to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit. Um, and then I twitched a bit myself. You must. I must, I admit, must admit you, you did. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> so yes. Um, I'm glad you. Um, you entered me into the inner circle there, Mark. Yes. I introduced you to the concepts and uh, um, and let you have some of the joy of twitching yourself. Yes. Well, I think we should get moving, Mark, because we've got a, a topic that oh. on the outside it looks like a small topic, but I think <laughs> you might end up um, going on for a while about this one. We're going to talk about taking eyes out of birds. I know we've spoken about removing eyes from various species previously, especially the reptiles. And I think we did one specific podcast on eye ablation in a rabbit's mark, um, but we haven't really gone into depth for birds. So that's what we're going to talk about today, Mark, and I'll quiz you on on the process here and let's jump into it. So Go for it. when do we do it and why do we do it? Well, I think when we do it, 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 you know, it, as in other species, it's a, a salvage procedure. It's a procedure that um, limits pain and suffering in an animal that has um, unhealable ocular uh, pathology. And I think it is, I, my only comment about that is I think that sometimes we don't consider it early enough because... There are times when the eye is no longer functional um, and it is just a source of pain and removing it. It's, it's a big thing. I understand uh, anytime we talk about in uh, removal of an eye, it's a significant intervention, but it certainly makes a huge difference to their quality of life, particularly with those ocular pathologies that are painful, as many of them are, Brendan. Yes. So, well, what's the most common? You're gonna. I know we can say here, but what's <laughs> what's the most common cause of having to do this procedure? And what's a? I'm gonna put you on the spot here. What's a an uncommon or or one that sticks in you in in your um in your oh, mind? Good questions. The most common for me has been trauma. The the uh, various injuries that penetrate the eye often pet birds will poke their their head into places they shouldn't and or be in a fight uh, with another bird in an aviary and and severe ocular injuries uh, often penetrating the orbit uh, penetrating the, the the actual eyeball itself uh, can be the consequence so that would be the most common reason 
the 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 one of the interesting things to think about. So I often divide these into wild birds and captive birds. And for many wild birds, I would say removal of an eye is an, is not an appropriate intervention. That if the bird can't see that it should be humanely euthanized, it can't be released to the wild and it's just going to suffer when you do. Except in one case, and that is um, uh, owls. Owls are so good at hunting in the dark that, um, that they do okay if they only have one eye. They depend on their hearing much, much more critically and the loss of an eye often is uh, not enough to compromise an owl. And there's a famous pair in Sydney of powerful owls who are closely watched by bird watchers. And both the parents have a traumatic injury to the eye, which renders one eye non-functional. And they've bred many, many times. So that would be the, the unusual thing. Would yes. Be uh, powerful owls coming in with um, uh, with um, ocular injuries um, and the logic behind going ahead with that in a wild bird is unusual. Yes. Well, let's jump into the actual process, Mark. And we're gonna I'm gonna simplify things here and get you to be be punchy and <laughs> relatively brief, if that's possible. So, what what's our what's our types of eye removal? Well, they, there's a couple of good things and a couple of bad things here. The, there, there are some circumstances where it's an appropriate thing to eviscerate the eye. That is, to do a, 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 keratot, a keratectomy, cut the cornea out, and remove the contents of the eye in their entirety, leaving the empty shell of the sclera um, in place. Um, and closing the eye over that. It does give a more cosmetic appearance and um, and it does make the procedure uh, a little bit quicker and easier. I've Is actually, there, uh, I'm going to jump in here, Mark. Yeah, Is yeah. there a possibility, an increased possibility of this technique compared with the second one that we'll chat about in a second of resulting in a, a complications like a, a fluid collection, a sinus, um, those sorts of things? I would have thought so. Um, and I must admit to having only eviscerated um, a handful of avian globes, um, but it hasn't been the case, Brendan. It, it, it certainly hasn't, uh, hasn't resulted. I, you know, I've done a significant number of these in in dogs and unless you're fastidious with your dissection and you remove all the appropriate tissue um, you can end up with um with fluid buildup and uh and sinuses and secondary infection and serious complication but that has not been my experience with the birds so um certainly eviscerating them is a, a perfectly acceptable technique and enucleation is obviously preferable when you have maybe intraocular neoplasia that you want to get those appropriate margins so there's less chance of a complication afterwards. So um, enucleation is, a, uh, um, is probably the thing that I've done more often. Yep. And it is a little bit, the shape 
of different species of bird's eye makes it a little bit complicated. So oftentimes doing a partial, well, it's often referred to in the literature as a collapse, but it's a partial evisceration so that you have a, uh, a better visualization of those retrobulbous structures um, and then using the appropriate small very, very small instruments um, tying off the, the uh, optic nerve and removing the, the sclera once you have good vision. Um, that tends to work pretty well as well. So that's the technique I've used. I do find that I often have to make a little incision in the lateral canthus, enlarge the, um, enlarge the, the opening to the eye to yep. um, gain good access. I certainly have done transpalpebral techniques where I uh, sew the eye closed, sew the eyelids closed, and then um, uh, cut into the, you know, around the closed eyelids and uh, tunnel around the eye. Um, and I still sometimes use a needle to empty the fluid from the eye so it collapses, uh, very partial evisceration. And and then get my access to the retrobulbar structures so I can tie off that uh, that optic nerve and the vessels that are associated with it. Ed, you mentioned about the amazing variance in size of the actual globe in bird species, Mark. Does that make it difficult to not also select your instruments, which we'll talk about in a second, but closing? Closing those, um, closing those eyelids, Mark. Is there any issues with birds along the lines of you know we certainly struggle with the reptiles, don't we? Um, with trying to close things over when we've removed an eye, is it the opposite with birds? We've got plenty of plenty of um, soft tissue, or not? Uh, no, no. There's it's a very similar arrangement. There's not a lot of. Um, uh, uh, soft tissue and because the eye is so big and you have such a gigantic empty orbit um, you often end up with a um, and particularly in the post-operative period a you know a pretty ugly looking sunken globe the one good thing in my experience is that once the feathers grow back that uh, rather unpleasant skin skin covered empty globe it becomes far less in the face of the clients um, and is much less of a worry. I have tried to use, uh, you know, silicone prostheses to try and create a cosmetic appearance, but my carving ability of those little uh, pieces of silicon um, is not that good. And it, 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 the only couple that I've done ended up having uh, complications um, and had to have the foreign body removed. So. Yeah, I, I, I do, there's not a whole lot of uh, soft tissue to sort of give a cosmetic appearance. You can get the, the eyelids closed, but they tend to suck into the, yeah. the socket and not look very cool. And I think it's always important, regardless of which species you take an eye out from, Mark, of, of really pre-warning the client how, as you mentioned, ugly that will look yeah. for that immediate post-operative few weeks or whatever until things settle down with them okay so instruments mark so any particular comments you like to make about what what you use to 
get that eye out? Well, I think the key thing is just making sure you've got instruments of appropriate size and shape. I do like to have uh, very, very small clamps, and I do like to get those deep down, just a gentle curve on them so that I can get them between the bony orbit and the sclera as I've dissected them apart, get them right down onto that um, onto that uh, uh, optic nerve and clamp yep. it off before I tie it off. It's, it doesn't happen as frequently as with rabbits, but there are there is always the risk of hemorrhage. There's uh, some species appear to have uh, venous structures, maybe not as uh, significant as the venous sinus in rabbits, but hemorrhage is a problem. And so being prepared with your instruments um, to deal with that hemorrhage is, um, is a pretty good um, exercise. And I find those... Um, uh, those uh, hemocell, the uh, uh, clot-promoting little pads are useful uh, yes. thing to have in my kit whenever I'm doing this surgery. Yep. You mentioned about the optic nerve, Mark, and um, structures we need to be careful with. Um, what's your tips on, on, on that? Well, I think the key thing to emphasise here is that I know that we have to be careful about traction on the optic nerve whenever we do an enucleation in whichever species. But the optic nerve of birds is very, very short by comparison to other species, and and any traction is likely well have, runs the real risk of causing some cerebral trauma. So um, that's why trying not to draw the eye out, but maybe to collapse it to gain access to that area, making sure your tissue handling is extremely gentle. And you're very conscious to ensure that there's no traction placed on the optic nerve. And those small instruments and appropriately sized clamps. I have looked at, um, there's a, uh, the Ligershaw system, which is a uh, um, electro surgery combined with clamping system. Yes. I've seen that used in a number of instances. And and, and that seems to work pretty well. Whatever system you use, whether it's uh, sutures at the back of your um, your clamp or the Ligershaw system, just making sure you apply no tension to the optic nerve as you do it um, and be fastidiously aware of uh, hemostasis. What about clips, Mark? So um, Liger clips or hemoclips are the two sort of brands that can or have been used and I've certainly I use the 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 Liger clip brand but I tend not to use them for when I'm ablating eyes I think at one stage I had one where I I used a clip at the back of the back of the um globe there and we must have had post-op complications um and it put, made me a bit wary and I just used suture material a suture to the clamped off area I'm the same as you. I, I um, love my, um, my my clips, my little staples that I can clamp onto um, the blood vessels. But this is one situation where I do uh, depend on the PDS, synthetic absorbable sutures, um, and um, I use a nice... And it also allows me to work with birds of different size. The, the, um, the Liger clips don't go down to 
a size that I'm comfortable using in maybe a cockatiel size yeah. bird. Um, and like you, I worry about how much stuff I leave into into that um, that eye socket that potentially is not going to be as easy a surgical site to maintain as sterile. Yep. Okay. What else do we want to cover there, Mark? The only other thing I wanted to mention was um, the scleral ossicles. And they make life a little bit complicated if you're doing an evisceration or um, or partial deflation because they maintain the shape. They're the embedded uh, bony structures and the cranial part of the orbit that often in birds maintain an eccentric shape um, to the globe. And they can make it a little bit difficult to manoeuvre a deflated globe Um, And so just being aware which species have them, what shape they're likely to be, and making a little bit of a plan that that you may even need to, um, once you have uh, deflated the the, uh, structures, the the globe, that you may even need to crack the the, uh, ossicles to gain sufficient access to the retrobulbar space. So just being aware that the ossicles are there and that you might need to manage those in your surgery is another step that's important when you're planning to do a nucleation in birds. So they're pretty solid, are they, in some species, Mark? They're yeah, pretty yeah. T- tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, they can uh, uh, really hold the shape of that globe and even though you've taken uh, most of the fluid out, um, the globe can still maintain a shape that makes it difficult to visualise the retrobulbar space. Right. What happens if it starts bleeding a lot, Mark? How, what's your hemorrhage control <sighs> process? You did mention those those um, pads or those sort of anti those sort of clotting um, type type pads. Yeah, and things it, like hemocell. That's been, I, you know, obviously my first step is uh, pressure on the area, and then to try and locate a specific uh, source and affect primary hemostasis maybe ligating an, an artery or whatever. But most of the time where I have hemorrhage in these, I think there's been a rent, a tear in a vein that's lining the bony orbit. And you, I find that I'm just not going to be able to establish a pedicle, put a suture on it and, and ligate a vessel like that. I'm not a big fan of huge amounts of radiosurgery in this area to... Um, you know, I don't want to see, we're very close, as we mentioned before, to the structures within the cranial vault and um, and I might try and sizzle one, but if it doesn't work, I'm just getting the hemocell in there, the, the um, gel foam, whatever trade brand you use. I do don't, find... Don't fry the brain. Don't fry, it's always... <laughs> it's, it's been a problem for me and it'll be a problem for the birds. And uh, yeah, just... I do, um, there has been a couple of times, most of the time you can leave that uh, material in there once a clot's affected and uh, leave it alone. But there has been once or twice I've had to pull some uh, gel foam out, some hemocell out, and um, and uh, it's, it's not broken down and formed a clot and incorporated into the clot as neatly as I would have expected. So um, just be prepared for that complication if you do leave a little bit of the the uh, foam clotting, promoting stuff in there. Great points, Mark. Great advice. 
How long do we leave the sutures in? Um, I generally leave the sutures in. I use uh, synthetic absorbable sutures, and I generally leave them in for three weeks. Um, the birds will often, I find, particularly at this location, the birds will, you know, if you don't use adequate pain control, they'll have a go at them straight away. But if you've done well with gentle tissue handling and used excellent analgesia perioperatively, the birds will often just leave them alone, and they'll often preen them out maybe over... Um, over you know that three week period, I have had cases where clients have been very pleased with the appearance, and I've done a physical exam uh, uh, six months or a year later, and the sutures are still sitting there, not worrying the bird at all. But yeah. three weeks is generally the time I want to have a good look at it and and remove them if uh, if that's appropriate. And other post-operative medications, what do we hit them with? Look, I, I am mainly aiming for anti-inflammatory drugs. Obviously, um, uh, it's potentially a painful um, uh, procedure. I tend not to use antibiotics, even though the surgery might be less than sterile by the nature of the, the uh, contact with the conjunctival fornix and the close association with the respiratory structures of the of the nose, I don't. I don't find infection to be a common problem, and and I would maintain close observation on the bird over the ensuing five days. But routine antibiotics are not part of my treatment. I just it's just anti-inflammatory medication after the the uh, um, first forty-eight hours after the surgery is performed. Excellent advice, Mark. Do you send the globe home with the client? <laughs> no, I don't. Generally speaking, I, you know what I'm like, Brendan. I like to make diagnoses on very, very little data. Often, you've often referred to them as uh, poorly educated guesses. Um, and one of the ways I get around that is um, to insist whenever we cut an eye out um, that um, we do some pathology on it. And it's surprising how often my... Um, uh, my diagnoses based on very little information are absolutely incorrect. And, and so, um, so yes, I think uh, taking that tissue, not giving it to the client and sending it off for some analysis is just a bit, if it's serious enough to take an eye out, get them looked at. And even if it looks traumatic, it wouldn't be a surprise to me that occasionally birds, you know, puncture a globe because it hurts, because there's something serious going on inside. And if you know that, then you might be able to save sight in the other eye or prevent the progression of a disease. Um, so, yes, send it off to Histo is my hot tip. And that is a hot tip, Mark. Fantastic. Gee, I wish I did that. I wish I could convince my clients to do the same. I'm <laughs> obviously not as convincing as you are, Mark, or as passionate as you are about... Um, I, I think the problem is, Brendan, that you're... My clients like yeah. to stuff their dead animals and put <laughs> eyes in them, Mark. <laughs> so we've got slightly different demographics, I think, <laughs> with our clients. Oh, I think with that, we better get out of here, Mark, and we'll talk to everybody next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. 
Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.